Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, your co-host. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The conversation in today's episode took place on stage, in person, at Portland Art Museum as part of the 2021 Portland Book Festival. The 2022 Portland Book Festival is Saturday, November 5th in downtown Portland, all in person. More info at literary-arts.org. Your moderator is our very own Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts and co-host of The Archive Project. And the discussion theme was Aftermath bringing together the authors of two haunting novels, which explore contemporary global events through the stories of people in the middle of the crises. Our moderator is our very own Archive Project host, Andrew Proctor, and the discussion theme was Aftermath, bringing together the authors of two haunting novels, which explore contemporary global events through stories of people in the middle of the crises. Miriam J.A. Chauncey's What Storm, What Thunder follows 10 survivors as they navigate the fallout of the catastrophic Haitian earthquake of 2010. Omar el What Strange Paradise is told from the point of view of two children caught in the global refugee crisis, a boy who arrives on the shores of an island and the girl who tries to help him escape. A warning, you might want to have some tissues handy. These are not easy subjects, disasters natural and man-made, and Miriam and Omar speak with uncommon grace and empathy about the people living through the very real-world crises depicted in their fiction. If you've read the books, which I hope you will, their empathy is not at all surprising, but it really is something remarkable and hopeful to witness. And having Miriam, Omar, and Andrew together on stage, I think made possible the depth and profundity of their conversation. I'm glad to be able to share it with you now. We'll join Miriam as she shares how her book, What Storm, What Thunder, began for her. When the earthquake occurred, I, my last novel had just appeared uh, in February 2010. And uh, there was a kind of scramble after the earthquake, both in terms of aid work and intellectual and, and cultural work, in the sense that some people saw it as an opportunity to kind of capitalize on disaster. And so when people would come up to me and say, oh, well, then your next novel has to be on the earthquake, I would say, absolutely not. And uh, because I didn't want to be part of that frenzy, you know. Yeah. Um, but three years later, you know, seeing Leroy's paintings, and then there were also Haitian writers in Port-au-Prince who started, who had been through the earthquake, who started publishing on their experience of the earthquake. Then I felt that I was free to begin that work because it was not part of that impetus. It was really realizing that I did have a responsibility and a skill, you know, to, to bear um, on the matter. And, and it took years. It was a, a work that took me, you know, about seven years to bring to fruition. So it wasn't part of any mad dash to, you know, to write about it. Yeah. Well, I think, I think all great novels sort of walk these moral and ethical tightropes. That's what makes them great, actually, right, is the risk that you perceive as a reader and um, the risk that the writers take. And I think, you know, both in, in both those books, you're unbelievably sensitive and thoughtful and incredible works of art. Um, but you're taking on something that really happened in our lifetime very recently, and many of those people have experienced are alive today and around us. Um, Omar, can you talk a little bit about, from your perspective writing, um, What Strange Paradise? How did you approach those questions, and what were the dilemmas for you in writing that novel? Yeah, absolutely. So, um... The first time I started thinking about the things that led to, to this book was in 2012. Um, I was in Egypt. I was born in Egypt. My family's all Egyptian. Um, I left when I was five. I grew up in the Middle East. And uh, I was back as a journalist. I was working for the Globe and Mail, which is this newspaper up in Canada. And I was covering the aftermath of, of the Arab Spring. And I was riding around town with an old high school friend of mine who was complaining about rent. You know, the rent's too high, the rent's too high. And at one point I asked him, so okay, what's the, what's the price for uh, an apart um, apartment in your building? And he said, well, do you mean the locals' price or do you mean the Syrians' price? Uh, I said, what the hell, what the hell is the Syrians' price? And he said, well, we've had these people come in and they don't have much of a choice. Like, you can charge them three times as much. I mean, what are they going to do, go somewhere else? And um, it quickly became apparent that this is, it wasn't just rent. It was like, you go down to buy fruits and vegetables from the stall downstairs and, and they can tell from your accent right away. Like if I started speaking Arabic right now, every Arab speaker in, in the world would know instantly that I'm Egyptian. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like being from South Boston, like it's, it's you know it <laughs> right away. Um, 
And just the casualty, the sort of casualness of that cruelty, the, 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 how readily that kicked in. Yeah. It was, it was, you, could, you could do it, so why not? Um, stuck with me for, for a long time because, you know, if I was born a few years earlier, I would also be Syrian. It was the same country for a while. It was the United Arab Republic or whatever they called it. And, and this was in the context of all of these Arab leaders saying, our Syrian brothers and sisters, our Syrian brothers and sisters. And it, it was all nonsense. On the ground level, there was a segment of the population that was fit to be exploited, and so they were going to be exploited. That's mm. sort of, um, and so that's what got me thinking about the story. And and over the course of sort of researching and, and trying to figure out the structure of it, there were these moments that were sort of seared into into my mind. Um, they came in the form of images, the images of a child lying on the shore, and then in this country, the image of a man and his daughter trying to cross into this country, trying to cross a river and drowning. And one of the things that struck me, in addition to the sort of immediate just horror of these things, was how they came wrapped in this sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, in this bubble of outrage. You know, how could we let this happen? How could we let this happen? And that lasted for about 24 hours. And then we all moved on to the next thing. And, and whatever the merits or flaws of the book, I wanted to do the opposite of that. I wanted to dwell. Uh, and the book is kind of dwelling. Um, that's the principal act. All of that said, I've been sidestepping your question, which has to do with this notion of what right I have to do any of this. You know, over my 10-year journalism career and now my five-year career as a novelist, by virtue of the subjects that I chase down, I am inevitably some kind of tourist in somebody else's misery. And when I was a journalist, I could at least justify what I was doing and my privilege of being able to leave at the end by saying, hey, this might change somebody's mind. This will show up in the national newspaper the next day, might make it to Parliament Hill, maybe a cabinet minister reads it. And most of the time, that's complete fantasy. Most of the time, that doesn't actually play out. But with fiction, that's an even more abstract calculus. Right. Because I have to think, maybe this will have an ephemeral effect in a long term. And all evidence, with at least my work, is to the contrary. And so at a certain point, I have to face down the fact that the thing I'm using as justification for carrying out this work that sort of makes me queasy on a moral level is kind of hollow. And I, I don't know what to do about that. I would only just argue with you a little bit and say I think fiction does a lot of really incredibly important <clears throat> things for our society and, and really commend you for taking the risks and doing that work. So I, I would say thank you, but that's how I'd argue with you on stage, I guess, a little bit on that. Thank you. It makes, it makes for a really good theater, I'm sure. <laughs> um, Miriam, I wonder if you'd read just a page and a half for us, if you would mind. This is near the beginning of the book. Um, maybe I'll let you set it up if you'd like sure. to, or just dive in, whatever you prefer. Sure. Um, so what Storm with Thunder is told in, in 10 narrative voices um, of equal number in terms of gender, but different ages. The youngest narrator is 11, the oldest is 75. Uh, and you discover three different family groups uh, through those narratives, and they're, they're all intertwined. Uh, and the beginning of the novel and the end of the novel is given to a market woman, Malou, who you will then find again in everybody else's story. But um, Andrew's asked me to read from a passage in Sonia's uh, narrative, and Sonia is part of one of these family groups I just described, as is uh, Tafia, her younger sister, who is 15, uh, her brother, Paul, who is 17, uh, who doesn't have his own section but figures in the story, and uh, her older brother, Didier, who is uh, in the diaspora in Boston. Um, and so they each have a, a narrative. And Sonia is a member of the M community, as is her best friend, Dudoni. And M in Haiti uh, is the term that individuals who are queer identified utilize uh, to identify themselves. And Sonia is uh, you know, a, a strikingly beautiful woman um, who comes from a, a lower uh, socioeconomic background. And she realized quite young that that beauty could be exploited, and so she makes a decision to be a sex worker in one of the large hotels. And the hotel she works in is um, patterned on the Hotel Montana that many people might have heard about in the, in the news that the UN and many and large NGOs would use, so a luxury hotel which has still been, has since been rebuilt. 
and I decided to write about um, this particular character and two other characters in the hotel because the news coverage about the fall of the hotel was all about the more privileged people in that hotel. And I did meet one survivor of that hotel fall who was not a privileged person, and it, and it made me ask the question, which I think all fiction writers ask themselves, what about, what if, you know, what about the people who were working in that hotel? What about the people who made it out or didn't make it out, um, who were not so privileged uh, and, and that we'll never hear about and we'll never, whose names we'll never know? And so this is, uh, this is just a, a short section from Sonia's perspective. And, they, and she and Dieudonné do escape the hotel uh, because they have been having premonitions that something would happen, premonitions that take the form of, of spiritual uh, awakening. Riding the motorcycle across the dust bowl of a city, I thought of the first time my arms had enveloped Dudonet's sinewy body on that dance floor, so they had met many years before on a dance floor, so many years ago, and squeezed him even more tightly. His heart responded by skipping twice, the second time more lightly than the first. Then his pulse raced without stopping, and I grew more afraid than I'd been in the moment at which the hotel collapsed thunderously behind us, more afraid than when I thought his hand would never reach across the girth of a tree that in the end must have protected us from harm. It too was still standing. I closed my eyes against the destruction, leaving Dudonet to maneuver on his own as I thought of my mother, sister, brother Didier, and Paul. What had become of them down in the valley of the city? My mind wandered vaguely over the irony of the moment, the black sheep of a family coming to the rescue with her equally suspect knight in shining armor leading the way. Yet with everything collapsed and in shards, who was coming to the rescue could matter little. All that mattered was that, they, that we were alive and on our way. I clung to Judone as we made our way through clouds of dust, all the while fretting about who I had become might never be. I hoped that for today, who I was would be enough for my father, mother, aunt, siblings, as more and more people emerged ghost-like from the darkness at the side of the roads, some of them with streams of dark liquid veining their way down the contours of their heads, others crying and throwing up their Asian arms into the air. I hoped that whatever they thought of me, we would find everyone that mattered alive. Uh, thank you for that. I, I wanted to ask, um, structurally, there are a couple of things going on in both your books that are really interesting, and one of them is the multivocal kind of element of your book. Why was it important to have 10 narrators, I guess 11 with Malu, if you count her as well. Mm -hmm. Why was it important um, for you to structure the novel that way? Well, there, there are actually 13 characters that you'll find, and, and it's, a, it's actually a mystical number, and so mm. I can't explain that part. Um, but uh, originally I was working with the idea of Douze 12, because the earthquake in Port-au-Prince specifically by the locals is called Douze after the day of the earthquake, January 12, 2010. Um, so I was working always with a cast of 12 plus one, which is the mystical thing. Uh, and then as I, you know, the, the work was tightened through the editorial process, you know, was sort of streamed down to 10, but you will still find the 13 throughout the novel. And my thinking was that one of the things I, I realized, you know, as, as someone born in Port-au-Prince and um, talking to family members who experienced the earthquake and, and others who survived but lost uh, you know, friends and family, was that I wanted to do two things at once. And, and so even though it seems as if 10 narrative voices is, is a lot, it's actually very little in the face of... I'm sorry. I think you might have to come back. Let's take a second. Yeah, of course. Um, Omar, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, Peter Pan because Peter Pan plays a role, or a structural role, at the beginning of the genesis of your, of your novel. It would be pretty funny if it played no role in my novel at all. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I just, just want to ask you about Peter Pan. <laughs> you could make me look very foolish right now, Omer. <laughs> um, can you talk about that? And then I'm going to ask you to read a little bit, too. Um, sure, yeah. So um, the, the, 
one of the things I could put on both my books um, is a little sticker that says, you know, this isn't how it would really happen you know, with American War. One of the criticisms was always, this isn't how a second civil war would, would happen. I said, yes, that's not what I was trying to do. Um, and with this one, it's the same thing. I was trying, I was trying to write a repurposed fable. Um, I wanted to, to take a comforting fairy tale that Westerners have been telling their kids for the last hundred years, and I wanted to invert it and, and use it to tell a different kind of story. Um, J.M. Barry, the guy who wrote Peter Pan, um, had a really interesting life, a really tragic life. When he was young, his older brother uh, died in a skating accident. I think he was 13 years old, and it crushed the family. His mom never recovered. One of the things that his mom would say to, to try and comfort herself was, you know, at least he would never grow old. And so the origins of Peter Pan, when we talk about Peter Pan today, we usually talk about something like Peter Pan syndrome, you know, the, the man who refuses to stop acting like a child. Um, the origins are, are the inverse. It's about a child who never gets a chance to become a man. Um, the, the, um, the book is very much a reinterpretation of Peter Pan, but not in a fairly overt way, uh, unless you're intimately familiar with the story and the biography of J.M. Barry. It doesn't sort of pop up uh, in, in any kind of way, but um, I think of the novel as a kind of collision of two fantasies. There's the fantasy pointed one way that says all these people coming over here are barbarians at the gate and we need to stop them by any means necessary. And then there's the fantasy headed in the other direction of if I can just make it over there, everything will be okay. Mm. And, and the book kind of takes place in the, in the, at the collision of these two fantasies. And so the structure of a fable seemed to work for my purposes for, for, for trying to give it that feel. I don't, know, I, I don't know if I did it right or wrong, but that was, the, 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 that was what drew me to that particular story. Well, it does feel like the, the, uh, you know, the question of like inverting your understanding of a fable, right? Again, that, does, that, that your book sort of inverts itself a couple of times in, in really, really astonishing ways. Um, maybe I'll ask you to read a little bit from page 120. I think, yeah, there you go. Um, and uh, you, know, you can set it up in any way you'd like, but it, I think it's a really beautiful, incredible passage. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, apologies in advance. I don't think I've ever read this out loud before. Um, so, so the book alternates between um, two kinds of chapters, before and after. The opening scene of the book is a child who's the sole survivor of a migrant shipwreck on an unnamed western island. Um, and then the after chapters are everything that happens from that point on forwards. And the before chapters are everything that led to him arriving on that island. Um, so this is from one of the uh, before chapters. Uh, most of the before chapters take place on the actual boat journey from North Africa into, into Europe. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more you need to know, but uh, bear with me, we'll just, we'll get through this together. <laughs> the freighter neared. Amir watched it breach the nighttime fog, its full size coming into view. It appeared to him as the largest thing he'd ever seen, larger than the sea itself. He tried to catch sight of any movement on the ship, any other sign of life, but the lights along the starboard side washed the deck. All Amir saw were stacks and stacks of shipping containers, tall as buildings. Soon the passengers of the Calypso felt the displacing force of the ship. The waves rose and smacked the side of the fishing boat, knocking it side to side. The two vessels passed, the distance between them close enough to swim, and then they were behind it, watching the huge freighter slip back into the night. For almost 20 minutes afterwards, save for the monotonous wheeze of the engine below, the Calypso sailed without sound, no passenger on the top deck willing to be the first to speak, the silence spreading into the lower decks. Some of the men and women who'd been asleep earlier now began dozing off again. The waves settled. In the quiet, Amir became aware of a smell, it was faint under the weight of the salty Mediterranean air, secondary to the diesel stink and the all-encompassing smell of the sea itself. But it was there, and building. It was the smell of the passengers, the smell of human bodies in need of washing. As the boat sputtered along, he sought to pass the time by building in his mind pictures of his mother and baby half-brother, 
and then checking those images against the ones in the bell-shaped locket around his neck. But even when the clouds momentarily parted overhead and the moon swept across the deck, there was too little light to make out the tiny portraits. An inch away, the images were still as unreachable as the backs of clouds. Even the sound that came to him from below, so hushed it barely registered, he at first took to be another half-remembered thing. Then he looked down and saw that it came through the gap in the floorboards. Quiet uncle called his name. Don't be afraid, he said. It's going to be all right. We're almost there. Almost where, Amir said, leaning down until his cheek once again touched the flooring. Where are we going? What's happening? I'm sorry, quiet uncle said. I'm so sorry. It was only then that a more intimate kind of fear replaced Amir's confusion. In all the years he'd known quiet uncle, he'd never heard from him a sincere apology. Please, Amir said, tell me what this is. I was going to go away, quiet uncle said, but only for a little while and only to see if it was true, if what they say, but I was always going to come back. No matter what, I would have come back. Do you understand? Amir said nothing. From below an absent light, the voice seemed severed from its owner, a letter written but left unsigned. Say you understand, quiet uncle repeated. Please say you understand. Suddenly a sharp, shrill ringing tore through the upper deck. Amir and everyone around him jumped and once again wrestled impotently with the darkness in an attempt to make out the source of the sound. This time, though, it came from the boat itself. What the hell is it now, yelled Muhammad. Sorry, sorry, came a reply in English from the wheelhouse. Teddy hit the alarm clock. Shift change. I wonder why was it important to you, Omar, to chop up linear time in the novel and have these alternating chapters? What was that intended to do for the story? Um, all I had when I started writing was the opening paragraph and the closing paragraph. I knew exactly what those needed to be, and I didn't know anything in between. Um, and about four drafts in, uh, the structure wasn't working. Uh, I, I was moving around too much mid-chapter, um, trying to get all of the things I, I, I wanted to say. <clears throat> Excuse me. At one point, I had interspersed uh, monologues from each of the central characters on the ship in between the chapters, and I thought it was the most brilliant device. <laughs> and two drafts later, I deleted all of it because it clearly wasn't working. <laughs> it was about 30,000 words. That, um, went into the memory hole. Um, and then I, I came up with that before and after structure. And um, there, there's, the book steals from a lot of places. It steals from Peter Pan, a short story called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which if you're familiar with, the book reads very differently. Um, the Odyssey, uh, but it also steals from the Apocrypha, particularly the book of Nicodemus, which is this book that hardly anybody has read, but it's an alternate story of what happens to Jesus in between death and resurrection, which is that he goes down into hell, he meets everyone, draws confession from everyone, and, and lifts everyone out of hell, starting with Adam and going to John the Baptist or something like that. And I was obsessed with um, the U-shape, the comedy, the, the traditional shape of a comedy is a U-shape. Uh, all the stories in the Bible, almost all the stories in the Bible are U-shaped. Things were good, they lost faith in the Lord, things got very bad, they regained their faith, the Lord made things better. I'm being flippant, but that's the story, many, many stories in the book. Um, and and I, was, I was obsessed with that form, and I had this story that was veering between Old Testament and New Testament. I had the story that with the before and after chapters, you had a miraculous rebirth and an exodus from Egypt, and I was going back and forth. And once that structure fell into place, um, some of the gears that weren't quite clicking started to click, and then, and then I was okay. Yeah. There's a quote in your book, this is what her parents' deaths had taught her. There was only one direction for evolution, a lateral movement sideways, like the movements of a crab. What, what does time mean for you in this book? Why was it constructed the way it was? What does that do for the story and for the lives of those characters? Yeah, I, I'd like to go back to your previous question yeah, too sure. and maybe connect it. Uh, and, I, and I do apologize, and, it, and I can't say that it's the first time, but I've broken down on stage because it used to happen a lot after the earthquake itself. Um, because what comes to mind, we just had an earthquake on August 14th of, of, uh, that was actually larger than the last one. The death toll was lower. Um, so going back to the issue of, of why 10 voices is that it seemed very little to employ 10 voices when you had 300,000 people disappear 
in 45 seconds. I mean, literally 45 seconds. And then, and I was at the time living in Cincinnati, which has a population of, at the time of 250,000. So it was as if that whole city had been wiped out in that time. And so part of my project was to try to figure out how to represent as many people as possible whose names will never be known because whole family groups were wiped out. Right, so you only know if somebody died, if you're able to remember them or if you survived. And this is also how uh, the death toll was miscounted for a number of years mm -hmm. after the earthquake, I think to about half the number of the, of the current numbers. And so, um, so that was the first reason that I used the, you know, the, the 10 voices to, to 13. And then also because one of the things that happens, and I think maybe Omar could speak to this as a journalist, but what happens in coverage of cataclysms or big you know, historical events in the contemporary uh, news cycle is that you get a kind of massification of the people, the Haitians, the Syrians, you know, um, and a, a very flat representation. This is what is happening. This is what people want. And in the aftermath of the earthquake, it was very clear that even though a number of collectives in the community were working together you know, for the, what would happen next, is that they were bombarded by the demands and the, and the desires of outsiders who didn't know the country very well. And I'm talking about you know, NGO workers and aid workers who had never been in the country before. Um, and so part of, part of the, the process that Haitians have had to go through is negotiate the desires of outsiders, as they always have, in a condition of crisis when they have their own needs to meet. Um, and so one of the things that the novel tries to do is to represent the variety of points of view. You know, uh, people like a uh, character like Richard, who's a capitalist, you know, who is an expatriate, who just wants to make as much money as possible and is selling bottled water back to Haitians, you know, because he thinks this is the, the best thing to do. Uh, you know, and his mother, Malou, who he no longer has a relationship with, is really just trying to help people on the ground, you know, with the little that she has. Um, and then, you know, having the age differences represented, the genders, different, uh, genders represented, and people of different uh, sexual orientation, and just all the different ways in which people reacted and experienced the earthquake was very uneven and remains very uneven. And so I wanted to represent that. In terms of time, uh, I think most Haitians and most people related to Haiti would agree that for Haitians, this was the most um, life-altering experience that the country had experienced. And this is after 30 years of dictatorship. This is after you know, intervention, military interventions from the US, uh, gunboat diplomacy going back to the late 1800s, uh, all kinds of interferences as people tried post-devalue dictatorship to create a democracy on their own, and that democracy was interrupted. Um, and so when the earthquake happened, you know, and you had that, that immediate loss of life and then the displacement of, you know, 1.5 million people who lost shelters, some of whom in 2021 are still under tents. And of course now in the Southern Peninsula you have uh, a million people who were affected by uh, shelter insecurity and food insecurity to the present day, which we're no longer talking about and this only happened a few months ago. Um, and so what we're you know, dealing with in terms of time is, is a feeling like things were already very difficult. Haiti was already mired in ideological suppression, political repression and interference. And then you have something out of the ordinary, which is both a, nat a natural catastrophe and a catastrophe that has been augmented by decades of decay and, and lack of, lack of, uh, of care. And so, you know, with those frail infrastructures falling apart, there is a way in which time suddenly seemed, you know, so I was really struck actually reading Omar's novel with the structure of the before and the after, because time for most Haitians today really is split with, between a before 2010 and an after 2010. Everything is governed by where you were in 2010. You know, the same way that Americans talk about, of a certain generation, we'll talk about where were you when Kennedy was shot, or you know, this kind of thing. We all talk about where were you when the earthquake happened? What did you do the following years? This governs all of our conversations in the way that the dictatorship used to govern our relationships and the ways we, we related to each other. So the novel is not chronological 
because, you know, it's roughly chronological in that you have more people, uh, you know, more of the characters talking about their, their lives before the earthquake, closer to the beginning of the novel, and then you have more uh, characters who are in IDP or internally displaced people's camps later in the novel, and IDP camps are for uh, people who find themselves refugees in their own country. Um, so there is that kind of a split, but the novel's sense of time is really governed by this before and an after, before an earthquake and after the earthquake, and, and also how do you reconcile yourself with an after that can never repair itself to a before, you know, so a, a, a young mother who's lost her children, you know, and, and for whom her entire life was those children. How does she return? To, there is no before. So one of the things I've been thinking through, uh, you know, because sometimes people ask me about, you know, what should Haitians uh, learn from that experience? And I always say we have so much more to learn from Haitians about how they're working through trauma and living with trauma, not, uh, not how they're, you know, working through getting over the earthquake, but how they're coming through the earthquake with the experience of the earthquake. And I think, you know, as I witness, you know, friends today who are, have been through the second earthquake and who were there for the last earthquake, I, we were having a lot of conversations about the healing and the grieving that we didn't have an opportunity to really uh, work through because we've been in survival mode for over a decade. And that some of that, some of the grieving processes that we had to put on hold. And for me, the novel, I think, was my form of grieving process as, as, a, as a writer, as, a, as an artist. It was a way to, to grieve after having done a lot of work on behalf of a living. I think this was my work on behalf of a, of a dead. You know, those we'll never hear from again, but with a sense of, you know, there is an after, but that after will forever have been changed by the before that we will never regain. You, Mary, you referenced Omar's career as a journalist, and you, you've also been an academic in, in your life. I wonder if you both could talk a little bit about how those careers sort of reflect and in, inform your fiction um, and animate it or inform it in different ways. Maybe, Omar, do you want to take a stab at that? I mean, I, I think of them in, in, in some ways as interlocking muscles. You know, you, you, journalism, you... You can't have a piece of journalism without answers. If you don't have a who, what, where, when, if you don't have answers to these things, you don't have a piece of journalism. Um, fiction's where I go to sit with questions. There's very little of a prescriptive element to, to uh, anything I write. Uh, I sit with the questions and then there's still questions when I leave. Uh, um, there are certain boundaries uh, after which nonfiction can't help me. Uh, you know, they might help another more talented writer of nonfiction, but, the, but, but there's a real hard stop for me. Uh, one of the things I think about, for example, so um, uh, 11 years ago, uh, I was sitting at home in Toronto, I was still working uh, up in Toronto for the Globe at the time, and my mom and dad were on vacation in um, Italy, and my mom calls up, it's like midnight, says, your dad's had a heart attack, um, you know, he's in surgery, and uh, touch and go, you know, calls back an hour later, you know, he didn't make it. Um, so I fly, you know, my, my father marinated in Egypt. I mean, he loved that place. He, I had to leave when I was five. He had to leave when I was five because the political and economic situation was, um, we just necessitated it. And he landed a job in Libya and we're at the airport. Um, and his name is Muhammad Ahmed. And Muhammad Ahmed happens to be a very common combination of first and second names. There's somebody on the terrorism watch list called Muhammad Ahmed. We get taken into secondary. We miss the flight. He loses the job offer. A little while later, he gets a job offer in Qatar, which if, over the next few years would become the richest place on earth. Hmm. Uh, and so I end up growing up there instead of Libya by a flip of a coin, right? And I sound like this. And, and everything, the entire trajectory from that point onwards is because of a piece of chance. So things like that, I don't know how to, how to deal with in the realm of nonfiction. Um, I, those are questions that are unanswerable for me. The same thing with, um, you know, so, so 
We, we go to Egypt, we, we get all these certificates from the various embassies, we fly the body into Cairo. It's towards the end of Ramadan. There's a particular night towards the end of Ramadan that Muslims consider especially holy. We're at the mosque in Al-Hussein, which is this incredibly old neighborhood where my father grew up. We're praying for his, you know, we do the prayer for the dead. People are coming up to me in the mosque and they're in awe because he might have died on that day. It's just a real interaction, right? Wow. Um, we go to the City of the Dead, which is where the mausoleums are. There is no mapping of this place. There are, there, there are the houses of the living are next to the houses of the dead, and the people in the houses of the living know this place by heart. So what you do is you drive up there, you find someone, and you say, where's the Elikad mausoleum? And they're like, yeah, around the corner, come over here. And they t- it's, it's, um, the, the, I think you go through your life, sorry, this is a very rambling answer, and I promise it'll come to an end soon. Um, the, the, you go through your life thinking that particular ways of living, particularly the injustices of living, at least come to an end at death. And now I'm in the process of reading about the Egyptian government is, is tearing down parts of the city of the dead to build gated compounds for the very, very rich and so on and so forth. And, and you think, at least subconsciously, that there's a hard end to these things. And, and that these things slip into death as well is something I can't answer in nonfiction. So those are the kind of questions that lead me into the fictional space, is things I know I'm never going to be able to fully answer. Yeah, I'm also thinking through what Omar has just said about death, and it, it makes me think of um, a, a, par- a Haitian uh, parable, I think, that basically ends with the idea that in Haiti you welcome death because death is impartial, something to that mm-hmm. effect. And I think, you know, in working on this novel, I've, I've worked a lot with the idea, some Haitian concepts of death, where death is something you dance with. You know, it's, it's uh, I don't know if it's an, it's, it's a beginning of another kind of conversation with the ancestors and, um, and not to fear, you know, death. But I'm thinking also about heritage in the way that, that Omar was talking about, uh, because I mentioned Malou who frames the novel and, um, and I think like Omar, I've been blessed in many ways, you know, in my life and, and being able to pursue things like becoming an academic. Um, but I owe it to people like my mother's grandmother who was a market woman, who was a, a tenacious market woman and, you know, raised a daughter and that daughter raised, you know, my mother and her siblings and they had a female-centered household where there were, there were no men, you know, in that household except for the, the grandchildren. Uh, and I wouldn't be here without them, you know. But, and I'm also thinking of my mother who, whenever she uh, went back to Haiti, would kiss the ground and start crying, you know, because she would never, she knew as a young person that she would never uh, be able to return to Haiti fully. And she loved, she loved Haiti so much. Um, so my life as an academic, interestingly, has been governed by questions that, as Omar was saying, need proofs. You know, academic writing is all about, you know, uh, for people who, if are college-aged people in the audience, you have to have your thesis. You know, this is why I tell my students, where is the thesis? Where is the subthesis? Where are your proofs? Um, and so there is a formula to, to it, but a lot of my academic work, which is in Caribbean women's literature, and um, I wrote a book on Haitian women's literature, which you mentioned earlier, um, has been about responding often to crisis. So the book on Haitian women's literature was a response to uh, the military intervention in Haiti in 1994. And I happened to live in Nashville, where most of the troops were deployed from into Haiti. And I learned in the process of working on that book that when Haiti was occupied from 1915 to 1934, it was the very same military bases that had deployed. And here I was sort of living history again. And so I, I, I did what I knew to do at the time, which is as a literary critic, to look at the literature being produced by Haitian women and discovered, because there, no one had written on Haitian women at the time, I discovered that Haitian women had produced novels in response to the political climate at, in every decade of the 20th century, starting in the 1920s. But that literature was by and far unknown because it was written in French. So I did a lot of translations in that, in that work. And so I was always responding in some ways to what was happening you know, in the world, in the Caribbean, in the academic work. But I think as Omar was saying, there are questions you cannot answer through proofs. There's some, there, you know, the mystical element, the spiritual element, 
you know, this dancing with deaf as that I mentioned before. And so I always, I'm always working, usually this is actually now is my first time ever in my career that I'm only working on creative work. Um, and, and because academic work can be exhausting in a different kind of way. Uh, but I usually work in tandem between an academic work and a, and a creative work. And my last academic work had a, a chapter on Rwanda, representations of Rwanda, and focused on a, a filmmaker, Raoul Peck, who uh, did a film that some people might know called Sometimes in April, which most specialists on the Rwandan genocide say is the best film, that, you know, best representation on film. Um, and I was really curious, you know, why is uh, a Haitian filmmaker working on Rwanda and that created the genesis of that, uh, that project, which was of a conversation between people, of cultural workers of African descent. But this is why in the novel you find a character who is an architect, has actually started in, and failed in architecture. So I have a character who's an, a, a good architect. Uh, <laughs> but, but she works in Rwanda because I was so saturated with the, and I, I also traveled to Rwanda and met women's cooperatives there, and my experience in Rwanda was so eerily similar in feeling to what it felt like being in Haiti, actually during the Duvalier regime in terms of, uh, you know, the terror that people lived with and so forth, that then when I started working on the novel, there were things that I couldn't talk about in the academic work about these connections that I could bring forth in the novel. So for me, I always feel like the, the, the creative work is about a, an excess, you know, not to get into psychoanalytical term, but a kind of an excess that, I, that, that bothers me, that, that inhabits me, and that I can explore without having to give any kind of proof that this is true because it's an imaginative world and I can do what I want with it, although uh, this novel is very well researched and you'll find that it's, you know, the facts are, are, are double-checked, um, but, but you do get to explore the psychological impact of, of events such as this and also the, the emotional connections between people that in academic work we, we don't give ourselves uh, the space to do, actually. Right. I think I want to acknowledge, too, just that you know, your work, both your work, it's, it's a lot of labor. It's a lot of emotional labor, and we can feel it on the stage today. And I just, I guess I want to thank you for being here and being so present and bringing us this work, which is difficult. And it takes a lot out of um, you both, I'm sure. I, I can't imagine how it, it couldn't. Um, and that's not always visible labor that we acknowledge. And I just want to acknowledge that that labor is really present for these works. What do you do to look after yourselves? I mean, that is these are not romantic comedies. You know what I mean? Like, it's really challenging stuff. And so what do you do to, to make sure that you're okay as you go through this? Um, I really like food. So I, 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 try to, I try to eat well, but I also try, I treat myself. I love films. I'm also a potter. And so um, I, I like to throw pottery. And I, I actually, I'm so happy I found that. I've always been a visual, uh, you know, I've worked in photography and different medium, but... Pottery allows me a place where I can zone out completely. I'm not a very good potter, uh, but I just love I just love the process. Um, and so, you know, and being present for other people, you know, being present for my students, for my spouse, you know, I just feel like um, making sure that there's a balance in my life. And I, and when I tip over to because there were times when I was working on this novel where the character stories were so fraught and so difficult where I did tip over into a feeling where I was in that space with them, where I couldn't quite function. And I had to teach myself to let it go, you know, to, to let it go, do those things that make me well and come back to it later, even if that meant that I was working on this novel for two more years, you know, that I didn't have to be caught up in, in time. And the, the, I think the end result was much better than if I had forced it. Omar? So that's the first time I've seen another writer talk about food. I'm so glad <laughs> I'm not out here on an island. Um, I, yeah, because I, I mean, like, I'd have a bad writing day and think, like, okay, at least I'll salvage this day with a cheesecake. And then I have a good writing day, and I'm like, I earned this cheesecake, and it's just, it's just cheesecake regardless, right? Um, yeah. Uh, it's the yep. new novel, Salvage This Day with Cheesecake. Salvage This Day with Cheesecake, a memoir. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 it, it, it's a lot of work trying to be kind to yourself um, because the process of you know how it sounds in my head versus how it sounds on the page, particularly in the early drafts, 
so much is lost that it's hard not to be, you know, it's, it's hard to still be kind to yourself. One of the things that is a self-correcting mechanism for me is that the anxiety and just challenges and ceaseless difficulty of writing is offset by the bliss of having written. So the writing process is incredibly anxiety-inducing, but knowing that you've put something down on paper after the fact is a very cathartic experience. So it self-corrects to a certain degree. And the other thing I think about is that, like, you know, a, while, a few years ago I tried to pick up guitar. It was hard. The guitar's collecting dust. I quit after a week. Uh, every time writing kicks my ass, I still go back to it. And that, that must mean something, mm. uh, because I don't have that willpower for almost anything else in my life. So um, those things I come back to, and they, they keep me going through the project. Mm. Was there a question over here? What gift would you like to offer the adolescents that I have the privilege to work with in public schools? Um, writing is thinking, and they have such empathy. I would love to take a gift from you back to them. The lineage of, of storytelling, the, the, the thing it does, I, I've been trying to chase down a workable definition of how it changes a human being, how it changes me, and I've, I've never been able to pin it down. It took me years and years to find out what Song of Solomon had taught me about names and the power of names and the names you give yourself versus the names that are imposed on you. And, and I think when you're younger and your interactions with the world are not quite as um, weighed down with all of the obligations of capitalism and getting through the day and the various lies we have to tell ourselves to get through the day, your capacity to tap into what a story actually does is, is at least in my opinion, so much greater. So that's my very roundabout way of saying uh, I have no gift to give, only encouragement to please tell your stories because so many of the systems we've created to run the grown-up world are fundamentally fraudulent. And, and rest on lies and are dependent on the load-bearing beams of lies. And if, if you are able to tell your stories, that is, I think, the most, I mean this in a positive way, the most violent way to tear down those load-bearing beams. So if you could please pass on some version of what I just rambled <laughs> that makes some kind of sense, I would, I would be grateful. I would add to that there are different ways of telling stories. And I think often we discourage young people from finding their own way to tell a story and that every way is as valuable. So one of the things that I like to do with my college age students is to give them the opportunity to, uh, because I, I'm, a, I'm a literature professor, so I, I tend to teach writing, but I always give my students an option, you know, when they do their final, final project to do something creative. And so, and then they can write about it to explain it to me in case I don't get it, <laughs> right? Um, because sometimes a failure is in the interpretation, not in, not in the, the telling of the story. Um, and so I, I have musicians who will write songs. I have painters who, you know, will create beautiful works of art uh, and things that they feel very proud of. They might never tell a story again, but they'll go, in, they'll go into that. And I've also, out of that, you know, I, I know one former student who actually ended up becoming a professional uh, visual artist as a result of, of doing her first painting in a class. And, and I had the privilege of actually publishing her painting as a cover of um, a journal called Meridians. It was her first uh, full visual. So, I, and I, I suppose I would tie that to something that, a gift that I received. I was very, very ill in the early 2000s and I thought I would never write again and I didn't know what I, what I had. I have something called Sjogren's, but at the time there was no diagnosis, and I read a lot of memoirs of people who were ill. And so I read a, a memoir by Agnes DeMille, who, was, who wrote a lot of, of memoirs, uh, but one of her, her, I think her almost last memoir, I think is called Reprieve, and um, she had an aneurysm on stage and then had to recover you know, her physical ability uh, in the hospital, and she was writing what became the memoir on little bits of paper as she recovered her senses. And one of the stories she tells is of Agnes DeMille. She was trained, uh, not Agnes DeMille, she, of uh, Martha Graham. Martha Graham was the person who trained her as a choreographer. And the story she tells was, is that 
she wanted to become Martha Graham. She wanted to be the next Martha Graham, right? And of course, she became a well-known Broadway choreographer. And when Martha Graham realized that this was her goal, um, she said, no, you know, you need to be, and this is a paraphrase, it's much more eloquent, you can Google the actual <laughs> quote, uh, but she basically said to, to, to Agnes DeMille, you need to be the best you, because there will never be another you in this world again. Who you are now has never existed before and will never exist again. So you need to find what it is that you can do, regardless of how good it is. You can't judge it, you just have to be ready for it and awake to it. And so I think this is the best message we could give our young people is that they have many gifts and they will be told over and over again that they are not as good as the next person, you know, so forth, that they need to achieve this version of success or that. If, if the gift I think you can impart to them is the confidence to be whoever they are, whatever they have brought into the world. That's Miriam J.A. Chauncey in conversation with Omar el and moderator Andrew Proctor at Portland Book Festival in November 2021. The 2022 Portland Book Festival is Saturday, November 5th in downtown Portland. More info at literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.